The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I'm good. If you will indulge me a little bit, we'll read from both testaments. I promise you I won't uh, do what, what Ezra did and make it, it was not raining, thankfully, or anything like that. But I do want to hear the context of what we're going to be talking about from 1 Thessalonians, from Zechariah chapter 9. If you would turn there, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. We often think about this passage as one that we hear on Palm Sunday or even at Christmas time, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, but it also has great implications for the coming day of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off from the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners freed from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double for I have bent Judah as my bow I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be filled like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Thus ends the hearing and the reading of God's word from the Old Testament. If you would turn with me to the new 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you, By a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thus ends the hearing and the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessings upon it as we hear it proclaimed today. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is good and right to be together, to hear your word on this midweek day, and we pray that you would build us up in faith, 
in love, and especially today as we hear these words, in hope that our Savior Jesus Christ is coming again, that he's coming again soon. In his name we pray. Amen. It is a real privilege today to be with you, and especially to preach on hope, the kind of sure and firm hope we have as Christians. At a time when many of us may feel empty of hope, we heard some really difficult prayer requests. There is great mourning even amongst the seminary community. There are folks who have lost loved ones. There's a funeral going on with some of the folks that are involved here on a day-to-day basis. That's on top of things like the problems we continue to deal with with coronavirus, the deep political divisions in our land, the difficulties in the supply chain that can make a routine grocery stop or fast food run end in frustration. I'm so tired of eating food in the parking lot because the Chick-fil-A won't open, mainly because I get it all over myself. You know, I need a bib or something like that, but my wife's sick and tired of me complaining about that. That's a silly thing. There are real concerns on the world stage with U.S. troops in Europe, close to Russia's buildup on the Ukraine border, not to mention the inflation rate, a stock market that's wildly unstable, evangelical and reformed Christianity splintering over social issues like race, gender, sexuality, the mission of the church. Many of you in the PCA today may be quite discouraged about the recent votes on the overtures that could have brought needed clarity and unity on where we stand on biblical truth, it can seem hopeless when these things go against us. And that's just on top of the normal everyday things we deal with. Heavy course loads, whether you're teaching them or are taking the classes. Publishing deadlines that seem impossible. Serving as an intern or a staff member with a church. Having doubts, deep discouragements, concerns over our loved ones or church members marriage problems, health concerns. These things don't take a break just because we're studying to be ministers. The spiritual walk of our children or grandchildren, personal finances, not to mention the spiritual battles we face. As Paul says in this very book, in this chapter, it's God's will for us, our sanctification. We know that's a battle, putting to death our sins and seeking to walk in newness of life by the Spirit, battling the temptations that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil, Sometimes we're exhausted, we're spent. Other times we fail and guilt overwhelms us and Satan twists the knife and accuses us, bringing up past sins. So we feel there's no hope in progressing in the Christian life. Well, if any of that hits you this morning, you're in the right place because Paul writes to restore, to refresh, to replenish our hope. Our hope that Jesus Christ is coming again and he will make all things new. And this morning, we're going to see that there's hope in grief because of Christ's resurrection. There's hope in death because the dead will rise first. And there is hope in life for the living. When Jesus comes again, they will rise in the air to meet him. There is hope in grief. If you look at verse 13 with me again, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, you may remember from your reading of Acts chapter 17 that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to cut their visit short with the Thessalonians. They were thrown out on their ears. As a matter of fact, they had to leave town. And they may have had anywhere from about a month to three months to be with them, though they surely taught them about the second coming of Jesus. There were some who didn't quite understand the implications of it, some who were uninformed. 
and they're grieving, they're sad, they're overwhelmed at the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have fallen asleep. Now, as you know, because you're excellent seminary students, sleep here is used as a metaphor for death. Our souls certainly do not sleep like the Seventh-day Adventists teach, because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As our shorter catechism tells us, at our death, the souls of believers do immediately pass into glory. And that is good news and reason not to grieve. But our bodies still rest in the grave. That's why sleep is such a good picture, because one day our bodies will wake up to a new day dawning. As I read somewhere a few weeks ago, that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Well, some of the Thessalonians didn't really understand this. They were afraid that the dead in Christ would miss the joy of the second coming. Some thought they would miss it altogether, maybe. Others thought, well, they'll be raised up at some other point, but they'll get kind of the second-rate version of it. And though so, it was probably a greater expectation that Jesus would come back in their lifetimes. Surely some even worried that they might die before he comes and miss out on the fullness of joy. But Paul says words we often hear at funerals and that I guarantee you students will use when you're conducting them, when comforting mourning families, that we may not grieve as those without hope. See, the Greeks didn't have a whole lot of hope in death. Uh, Bob Kara in his commentary, I call him Bob. He was my professor at RTS Charlotte, his, Dr. Robert Kara. He's a really good fellow. But he collected some quotes, some epitaphs common on ancient Greek manuscripts that are headstones. And maybe you've heard these before. This is one of them that's probably the, the most telling. And this was just on a headstone of, of, of a Greek person. I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. That's, that's the Greek idea of what would happen after death. Now, this one found in a letter that was supposed to provide comfort to somebody who had died. We are nothing as we were before. Consider how swiftly we mortals drop back from nothing to nothing. Imagine if that's what we had to say to someone when they died. Talk about grieving without hope. Uh, each Thursday, I teach a group of uh, high school seniors over at Classical Conversations at, at Second Press. And we read the Greek epics. This is like seventh year doing it. We read the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Latin Aeneid. Maybe some of you all have read those before. And the latter two feature trips to the underworld. And it is a shady, shadowy existence for those in Hades. There's no joy or peace or rest there, really. Only regret and doubt and despair. That's even true for the great heroes like Achilles or Agamemnon. You see, their idea of glory is to be remembered on earth for the wonderful deeds that they had done. They want people to sing about them and to write poems about them and to enjoy their exploits that way. But there's really nothing but frustration found and anxiety and unfulfilled desire in the underworld. But folks, that is not true for the Christian. We have a message of hope for the nations. I'm not sure I've ever conducted a funeral service without saying those very words. May we not grieve as others do with who have no hope. Now keep in mind something. Paul is not saying do not grieve when a loved one dies. Do not cry. Do not mourn. Not at all. Mourning is part of the Christian life, whether over our sins, whether over the sins of others, or even the effects of the fall, which includes death. But we know that Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We know that Jesus himself wept loudly at Lazarus' tomb. So if you've recently lost someone you love, or you're ministering to somebody who's lost someone, or if the memory is still sharp and fresh, even if it's been many, many years ago, it is okay, it is good, and it is right 
to cry out to the Lord, to mourn and to grieve. He understands. He is with you in that. But it is not okay to grieve without hope because we have hope in Christ. We have hope that one day God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. And he who sits on the throne will proclaim, behold, I am making all things new. This will happen when Jesus himself will come again and receive us to himself. How do we know this is true? How can we grieve with hope? Because we have faith. We believe. That's what it says in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And this is not a blind hope. This is not mere wishful thinking or a fairy tale. It is hope based on truth, on historical fact. You see, one has gone before us. Our Lord Jesus died on Calvary's cross on Good Friday. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's unused garden tomb. And before morning light on the third day, there was an earthquake. The stone was rolled away. The grave clothes neatly folded. And when the ladies came and the angel said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And because he is risen, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And one day we too will rise. For as in Adam all die, and in Christ all shall be made alive. This is what Paul's teaching here. And translating the end of the verse with the natural word order, I think yields a more natural rendering. Even so, God will bring with him those who, through Jesus, have fallen asleep. You see, as our shorter catechism also says, our bodies, still being united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Our bodies still belong to him. They still matter to him because they are destined for glory. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He will not abandon our bodies to corruption, to decay forever. But on the day of Christ's return, we will rise again just as our Savior rose again. So if you're grieving today, if you're dealing with fresh grief over a loved one, a grandparent, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, even a covenant child, do not grieve as those without hope, but come to Christ today. Renew your faith in Him that he indeed died and rose again, and that your loved ones who trust in Christ, and that you too who trust in him, your souls will be glorified in heaven with Jesus upon your death, and so will your bodies when he comes again. That is why there is hope in grief. There's also hope in death for those who have died. If you look at verse 15, we'll see that. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And if you cut to the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What an affirmation Paul gives here. What a seal of approval, a word from the Lord. You can take it to the bank. Jesus himself says this. Listen, not only will the dead in Christ not miss his coming, they'll be the first to see it. They'll have a front row seat. The dead in Christ will rise first. Isn't that a glorious thought? 
and we have an old historic church. And uh, Rick Phillips is a friend of mine, and he one time introduced me as Robert Cathcart, the pastor of Friendship Presbyterian Church. It has about 1,100 members. And I looked at him, I said, you're crazy, Rick. I said, we have about 120 members. He said, yes, but you have about 1,000 out there in the cemetery. And I thought that was a wonderful thought. It's really encouraging to a small church guy. But isn't that a thought? Those 1,000 or so in the cemetery, cemetery, whoops, that was a bad slip of the tongue, wasn't it? A Freudian slip there? No. Those in that cemetery who are in Christ will rise first. They'll be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. They will be glorified, renewed. Ezekiel's scene with the dry bones gives us a little picture. The Lord is going to put us back together again, reconnecting the bones, attaching the sinews, covering them with flesh, transforming them into new resurrection bodies. And friends, it doesn't matter if we're buried at sea, burned in an accident, devoured by a beast. The God who created all things out of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power, he'll have no trouble putting us back together again. Isn't that wonderful? And our bodies, the ones we're walking in right now, are going to be reunited with our glorified souls. And we, body and soul forever, will reflect the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about it. What was sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What was sown in weakness, raised in power. What was sown in natural body will be raised a spiritual body. So that all weaknesses and sicknesses and corruptions, all those things that we're praying for diligently for our families and for ourselves and for our friends, all the limitations of our bodies and minds will all disappear just like that. Talk about hope for the dead and hope for us today, too, when our bodies begin to fail us. Most of y'all don't have to worry about that. But when you can no longer comfortably read from a regular print Bible, I brought the wrong one with me today and I almost struggled, but it, it worked out. When our knees creak and crack, when we face surgeries to repair shoulders and hips, when we hear the diagnosis of cancer, when we live in chronic pain or deal with chronic illnesses, how encouraging it is to know all that's going to pass and that we'll enjoy the pleasures, the beauties, and the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to taste, feel, touch, see, explore, and fully experience the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of our heavenly inheritance for all eternity. There is such hope for the dead in Christ, for they'll be the first to experience it. And there's no way they're going to miss it. Paul makes that very clear here. He makes great pains to show that this is going to be a public event. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now there are some who use this passage to promote the idea of a secret rapture of the church before the days of tribulation. Of course, since Thessalonica was one of the most persecuted churches in the New Testament, I'm sure those saints would beg to differ because they went through tribulation, as did the seven churches in Asia, as have God's church, more or less, for the last 2,000 years. If anything, in our day, the church worldwide, and many of you are from places that are not here, you understand this a lot better than we do, is experiencing heavy tribulation while still growing. Some of you may have attended the Calvary Presbyterian meeting back in January, and our pastor for the day, Richard Winston, said a great thing. He said the church is growing by 1.8% each year. That's tremendously encouraging. As that may not be true in the United States or in the West, but most of that is happening in the global South, in Latin America, in Asia, and in Africa. And many of those Christians are the ones who are under heaviest persecution 
and tribulation. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering in that way and those who are planning to go back into that, maybe who are studying here today. Regardless, the second coming is no secret event because the glory of the Lord is being revealed and all flesh will see it together. Though Paul's addressing Christians particularly here, as John states, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Yes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul is talking about the great and final day of the Lord, the day of judgment, Christ's final coming. And look how he comes. He comes bodily. The Lord himself, the God-man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus himself comes, descends from heaven, as those angels predicted when he ascended. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And he will come with authority, with a cry of command, calling his people to himself like a great general gathering his army. And there'll be an archangel there echoing his cry. And as we read in Zechariah 9, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Oh, I can't wait to hear that trumpet sound. Can you? For the day of our deliverance will be here. The Lord Jesus himself will appear just as the trumpet sounded on Mount Sinai and the Lord appeared in the cloud. So will Jesus come to rescue us from the waterless pit of the grave. He will gather his flock from the north, south, east, and west. He will make us shine like jewels in a crown. Just like the Levites who sounded the trumpet at the beginning of the year of Jubilee, so our eternal Jubilee will begin. A time of unlendless celebration and freedom and liberty for the people of God. Oh, what hope for those who die in the Lord, who sleep in the Lord. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And this is not only true for the dead, but also for the living. Yes, there is hope in grief, there is hope in death, and there is hope in life. Look at the last few verses as the hope just builds to a giant crescendo. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, here's the final piece of the puzzle. If it's the Lord's will that he come again while we're living, we too, those who are left, distinguished from those who've died, will be caught up. That's too light of a phrase. It's more like uh, taken or snatched. And the Latin translation is rapture. So I guess we can say even Presbyterians believe in the rapture. Uh, since the concept is there, though, it's defined very differently than most folks would probably think about it. We're, we'll be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ. That's right. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And what we'll do next is amazing. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. These aren't ordinary clouds. No, as you know, these are clouds of glory, like the Israelites saw in the wilderness, like the one that filled the Holy of Holies, symbolizing his presence. And we will meet him in the air. This word meet is a rich one. According to scholars, many of probably heard here who could do this a whole lot better the way I read, but it's the word used to signify meeting a dignitary, a royal ambassador, a high official, or even a king. The custom would be to meet them outside the city walls and then to process in with them with pomp and circumstance. 
So we will meet the Lord, the living and the dead, when He comes again in glory. And then we'll descend with Him. The church of the living God is the conquering King as He sets out to judge the world and then to purify it by fire, transforming it into the new heavens and the new earth. And friends, as glorious as it will be to be raised again if we've died, to be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye if we're living, to have glorified, beautiful, restored bodies, and to join with the saints who've gone before us, to see family members, children, parents, grandparents, husbands, wives, beloved aunts and uncles, cousins, friends, spiritual mentors, even great Bible heroes like Noah and Abraham and Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, Mary, John and Paul, or Christian heroes like Polycarp, or Athanasius, or Augustine, or Anselm, or Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Butzer, or Knox. Those are the ones I really want to meet. The most important phrase in this hope-filled passage comes at the end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. Did you hear that? Here's the glory of heaven, that we will always be with the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for us, the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered death for us, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, He is the one who makes heaven glorious. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty, along with His Father and the sevenfold Holy Spirit. You see, the triune God is our portion and our exceedingly great reward. And God's covenant promise will be finally fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. I hope you do excuse me. I used to be a Baptist, so that one's still in my mind. But how gracious is our God to renew our hope today, our hope in grief, our hope in death, our hope in life. And let me just say this to the young men who are studying for ministry and those who are training them. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with the hope of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Listen, the pastoral ministry is wonderful. It is a glorious calling. I've been at it now for 24 years, and I'm very thankful that I get to do this every single day. I get paid to exposit the scriptures and to preach and to visit and to pray. What you know? There's no better job in the world. But it's also hard. It's labor-intensive. It can be draining and lonely. Sometimes you feel like a sermon machine. You spit one out, and then another one's due. You know, I never liked having deadlines when I was a student. Well, it's kind of the wrong profession to be in, right? Except that it's so, it's so wonderful. Sometimes you have three funerals in the same week with challenging circumstances. Sometimes your people will treat you like the Oracle of Delphi. They'll expect you to have all the answers to life's riddles and to have them right then on the tip of your tongue. Sometimes they're going to use you as target practice, frankly. Other times you'll preach and pray and counsel your heart out and you won't see fruit immediately as quickly as you want. Sometimes you'll find yourself in theological and ecclesiastical disputes that seem to go on and on without resolution. But to paraphrase Paul here, let us not minister as those without hope. Instead, let's encourage one another with these words, because Jesus has called us to proclaim this glorious gospel of hope and is using it right now 
to purify and perfect his bride, you and I included, so that she'll be ready and resplendent for the return of the bridegroom. So let me charge you today that as you minister, never lose hope in the one who says, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And hold on to his promise. Behold, I am coming soon. Our goal as ministers is to prepare the bride of Christ for the coming of the King. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege to come together and to be encouraged by these words. As we minister in difficult circumstances, or as we prepare to do so, but we never lose hope that you are the sovereign king, that you are working out your purposes right here and right now, and that one day you're coming. May we persevere, may we press on in faith, in love, and in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.